House floor. So I'm the Foreign Affairs spokesperson for the Lib Dems uh, in the Lords. And of course, we've been giving a tremendous amount of thought to what's been happening in Iran and Saudi Arabia and their relationship and their impact across the region. Um, clearly, what's happened with the Iran nuclear deal and the United States pulling out um, is helps to destabilise something which had been uh, somewhat um, stabilised um, previously. That's um, a risk. Um, what's happening in Syria, in Lebanon and around is also, of course, relevant. What Saudi Arabia and in conjunction with the UAE are doing in relation to Qatar, to Yemen and now, of course, the uh, appalling murder of the journalist in, uh, in, in the Turkish uh, in the uh, Saudi consulate in Turkey, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and the somewhat surprise, it seems, by the Saudis at the reaction to that um, in itself tells you quite a lot. It's a, it's a tinderbox. We've known that in the region. Incredibly dangerous. Um, from my perspective, not the best time for the United Kingdom to be pulling slightly away from our EU colleagues, as appears to have been agreed today. Um, we all need to be working very closely together um, on what's happening in the Middle East and in relation to Iran and Saudi Arabia. So this is, this is fascinating to see this report and, to, and the rejection of some of the assumptions about the Saudi Iranian relationship um, that, uh, that are highlighted here. Um, so we have four speakers, and I'll introduce them um, when they come to speak. So I'm going to start with Simon uh, Mabin, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at Lancaster University, where he is also the director of the Richardson Institute. And he um, focuses on international political theory and Middle East studies, um, focusing, he says, on sovereignty and rivalry between, the, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. He's a research fellow with the Foreign Policy Center and served as academic advisor to the House of Lords International Relations Committee. Uh, they had an inquiry into, the U into UK relations with the Middle East um, in 2016 to 17. A very important report which came to a very interesting conclusion and recommendation to the, to the government, which was, was particularly striking in relation uh, to the Palestinians. A very brave report. <coughs> Dr. Mabin is the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Power and Rivalry in the Middle East, and the, is a project director, or the project director, for the sectarianism, proxies, and de-sectarianization CEPAD, is it called? CEPAD. CEPAD. I think project. we've agreed upon. Well, it's, 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 it's probably easier to say than the one that I've just given <laughs> you. So, um, Dr. Maven, if you could start us off. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for those kind words. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to my fellow panellists. Thank you to Adam and everyone at the Foreign Policy Centre. It's wonderful to be here. It's, it's wonderful to be back in, in the Palace of Westminster and very exciting to be launching this report, which you all should have a copy of on your chairs or on the tables in front of you. Saudi Arabia and Iran, the struggle to shape the Middle East is 
for me, a very timely and important bit of research that I can only take a very small bit of credit for. Fortunately, the project has been able to draw on the expertise of pretty much the, the world-leading figures in the various parts of the Middle East that this rivalry is, is taking hold. And the report offers some really fascinating bits of insight into the, the difference in which the rivalry between the two major Gulf powers the way in which it plays out across the region. And I feel quite comfortable talking about the quality of the report, given that, that a vast majority of it was written by other people rather than by myself. So I, I think I can, I can sing the praises of those chapters in particular. As the chair said, this is a rivalry that is central to understanding Middle East politics. It isn't perhaps the only thing, that the key thing that is underpinning absolutely everything, but it's certainly one of the key issues, one of the key rivalries and relationships that has played a particularly devastating role in Middle East politics since 1979. It's a rivalry that's had ebbs and flows. It's a rivalry that has good days and bad days, and worse days, and even worse days. It's not a fixed rivalry. It's not a rivalry that is a sort of fixed, spatially homogenous issue. It's something that evolves, contingent upon time and space. How the rivalry plays out in Yemen is vastly different to how it plays out in Lebanon. How it plays out in Syria is different to Bahrain and to Iraq. And that's one of the things that the report tries to show. It tries to show that the, the rivalry between these two hugely important states in the Middle East and in the Muslim world plays out and interacts with actors, identities, issues at a local level. And that means that it manifests in different ways at different times. And so if we look at the history of Saudi-Iranian relations from 1979 onwards, and it's worth saying that before 79 there was a fractious rivalry driven by mutual suspicion, driven by concerns about territory and control. But since then, there have been a number of distinct periods. In the immediate aftermath of the revolution, there was a period of, of mutual suspicion as the rivalry took on a, a, a strong Islamic dimension, as the two states vied for legitimacy over the Muslim world. And then post, post the Iran-Iraq war, Following the death of Khomeini and the emergence of some more reform-minded politicians in both Saudi Arabia and in Iran, we start to see scope for rapprochement. We start to see dialogue between the two states. We see mutual visits from Saudi leaders to Iran and from Iranian figures to, uh, to Saudi Arabia. In part, this was driven by mutual fears about Iraq, but it was also driven by a, the cultivation of, of empathy. There was a devastating earthquake that, that hit Iran, and, and Saudi Arabia provided a great deal of financial support to Iran, and that, that started to build up a, a sort of sense and a scope and an environment for rapprochement. Of course, that wouldn't last, and with the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, 
things got increasingly fractious. We saw Iraq emerging as an arena for the two states to play out an increasingly bloody uh, confrontation. And then the Arab uprisings happened. The, late, uh, the events of late 2010 and early 2011 changed the political landscape of the Middle East. We saw space emerging in Bahrain, in Syria, in Yemen, to go with long-standing competition in Iraq and Lebanon. And, um, and, and what starts to happen is the rivalry finds new ways to take hold and to shape space, interacting with those dynamics on the ground, interacting with local actors, interacting with, with socioeconomic factors that have shaped domestic politics in these respective proxy arenas. And that's what this report tries to show. It tries to show how these things differ on a case-by-case -case basis. They differ across time and space. And amidst an increasingly contested region, in, amidst <coughs> increasingly bloody wars in Syria and Yemen, increasingly volatile situations elsewhere, the rivalry occupies a central role. But we shouldn't reduce it to an ancient hatred thesis. We shouldn't reduce it to a long-standing enmity between Sunni and Shia. What we must do is offer a far more complex, far more nuanced understanding of this rivalry and how it interacts across time and across space. How it plays out across rapid urbanization, across rapid demographic change, and across serious existential changes that are impacting on, on political dynamics in the Middle East. And I think that as there are serious political challenges facing rulers, facing political elites, facing individuals across the region, the broader struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran occupies a central role. It provides an environment and a context through which events can be viewed, through which regional politics can shape, in, uh, can shape local politics, can shape domestic politics. And that's what we're trying to do in this report and within the project more broadly. Understand and more nuanced, uh, put forward a more nuanced understanding of the rivalry, rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran and how it plays out in these different states. But try and work towards a de-escalation of, of the rivalry. Try and think about who has a role to play, who can facilitate this de-escalation. And the report puts forward a number of recommendations that I won't go into now, but I think there is hope. There is scope for rapprochement once again. Just like there was in the 1990s, it can happen again. However, it's not likely at present. It requires work. It requires <coughs> us as individuals, academics, policymakers, parliamentarians, to, to challenge a number of the prevailing narratives that do far more harm than good. And so I think on that note, I will, I will leave it there. The report says, uh, says things in, in far more, um, more nuanced and appropriate ways than I could do now. So I think it's probably best that I hand over to other speakers on the panel. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed. And, and to think that there's hope in this tinderbox is amazing. So I think what you have very effectively done is... is, is asked us to 
reconsider how we look at this, and then you haven't told us the answers, so we have to read the report. So <laughs> That's the plan. Well done. <laughs> um, well, if I can now pass on uh, to my parliamentary colleague, uh, Fabian Hamilton, MP. Um, he is Member of Parliament for Leeds North East, and he's been um, in that position since 1997. He's a Shadow Minister in the Foreign Office and Defence Teams, um, having previously served as Shadow Foreign Minister since January 2016. He was a member of the International Development Select Committee in 2015 and 2016, and uh, previously served on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee from 2001 to, uh, to 2010, so quite a lengthy period. Um, he was um, formerly a chair of the Iran All-Party Parliamentary Group, so has background in that, and is also active in the All-Party Parliamentary Groups on Turkey and Morocco, so all very relevant. So, Fabian. Uh, thank you, Lindsay, um, and thank you for chairing today's event. Thank you to the Foreign Policy Centre for organising it, to Adam and all the staff, and thank you, of course, to our panellists. Um, it's always a privilege to be on a panel like this, especially when um, my knowledge and understanding is considerably less than the expert academics that I'm sitting with this evening. However, I have a few observations to make. My, let me just uh, start by saying that, um, uh, start perhaps where Simon left off, um, I was delighted that he said there is hope and scope for rapprochement. Um, and I would just add that politics is the art of hope. Uh, because unless we have hope that we can make the world a better place, we're wasting our time, aren't we, Lindsay? Um, and you and I both uh, spokespeople in a, for our respective parties uh, in foreign policy. Now, I've been given the unenviable task of not only being responsible for the Middle East and North Africa in our foreign office team under Emily Thornberry's leadership, uh, but also a new <coughs> position, which is called um, Shadow Minister for Peace and Disarmament. It's considerably... Uh, odd position because there is no Minister for Peace and Disarmament, you probably gathered. Um, and that's why I'm in the defence team as well, to deal with the disarmament issues. But we're not here to talk about those this afternoon. Um, over the ten years I spent on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, we visited the Middle East many, many times. And one of those visits actually was, a long time ago now, in 2003, to Syria, before the Civil War, uh, before the appalling disaster that's befallen that benighted country. Uh, and we went to meet Bashar al-Assad very not, not long after he'd actually left London to take up the role as president uh, after his father had uh, nominated and ensured uh, that he would be Hafiz al-Assad's successor. There was a very good documentary, I don't know if anybody saw it, on the BBC about the al-Assad family, which I think shed quite a lot of light on the dynamics and the regional politics uh, of the Middle East, especially based around Syria. But a lot of the uh, ideas, a lot of the, um, the, the strength that Hafiz al-Assad felt he needed to push the country into modernism into the 20th century and ultimately into the 21st um, were centred there in Damascus. Uh, he was the ultimate strong man and he was very brutal and cruel with it. Uh, I recommend that documentary. Um, but it was uh, very strange to meet Assad uh, uh, junior, uh, Bashar uh, with his uh, very good English, and he's slightly odd lisp. Um, he's, he's very tall, as you probably know, uh, and he's married to uh, a woman who has British nationality. Um, but it was strange to sit there uh, in the palace, the presidential palace, overlooking Damascus itself, uh, and be addressed by a man 
whose English was perfect, but was speaking in Arabic uh, and being uh, interpreted by his foreign ministry uh, official, who he then proceeded to correct when she got her English slightly wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, very odd situation. Uh, but he was, after all, as he told us, a great Arab leader. Um, we know what's happened since then in the last 15 years, and it's not the Assad family that's suffering. It is the many, many millions who've been displaced uh, and who are now refugees. And that leads me on to the place I've just been to, uh, just got back from this weekend, Beirut and Lebanon. Um, 1.5 million Syrian refugees. But as you know, because I know you've written about it, son, the Lebanese do not regard refugees as being, uh, as, as being people who can assimilate, even if they are relatives, cousins, family members. And so we have, have a situation of, I think it's, it's certainly more than 300,000, probably more like 500,000 Palestinians who've been there for 70 years in camps. Uh, and we actually asked our hosts whether we could visit some of those camps, but there simply wasn't time in order for the fact we had to get back for Remembrance Sunday. If we'd had an extra day, we could have gone. Um, but nonetheless, we were told about their terrible plight. Uh, but of course, much more important and essential to the future of Lebanon uh, is the 1.5 million Syrians, who most Lebanese you speak to say, of course, they won't be here that long, the problem will be resolved eventually, and then they can go home. So we're not prepared to stop them coming. They couldn't because the border, of course, was there was no border. Uh, and uh, you'll be very delighted to know that it's uh, this country, the United Kingdom, that's helped <coughs> secure that border. Uh, we've spent a lot of aid money, I believe, and a lot of military cash uh, actually having a hard border and a border force. But now Lebanon has a border, I mean, its main border, its only borders with Syria, apart from uh, the, the, the far south with, with Israel, and we've got Unifil there, making sure that they uh, continue to kill each other. Um, and that border has stopped any further refugees coming. But of course, it also stops people going back if they want to go back. They are trying to encourage people to go back. A few have done so. Uh, but we met with the foreign minister who said very clearly, um, we want them to go home and we will encourage people to go home and that is the only place for them. And Syria is now 70% safe, so it's okay for people to go back. I really don't buy that. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't buy that. Uh, and he was very critical, the foreign minister, of our Western attitude of you've got to look after these people, you've got to make sure that they're comfortable where they are so that they don't feel they have to leave. They want them to leave. But you can understand when you look at their economic situation. As you said in this uh, great publication that we're examining this evening, and that I shall certainly read from cover to cover as soon as I've got a minute, uh, the debt to GDP ratio, 153%, the third worst in the entire world. And yet when you're there in Beirut, you don't get the sense that this is a country on the verge of economic collapse. Actually, we met some extraordinarily rich people uh, who are also British citizens. So. I think most of the money is tied up in Kensington. Um, but but it, was, it was interesting to see that contrast because it, I mean, it wasn't like going to India. You could, see the, you could see the poverty on the streets, but it was actually, it looked like a very prosperous place. But nonetheless, there are problems. It's an ever more fragile coalition, as we know. Um, it's a fragile coalition of, co coalition of all the communities uh, that make up that fascinating country. Um, the only other point I make is actually, in a way, um, something that happened to me personally on the way to Beirut on Wednesday, which is a sort of metaphor for the, some of the issues they have to deal with, and that is when I got to the check-in desk for Middle East Airways, um, my I gave my passport over, and they said, sorry, sir, you cannot go to Lebanon. You guess why. Uh, in 2010, I had an Israeli stamp on my passport. 
Uh, now, actually, we are issued with two passports. I brought the wrong one. And so the shadow foreign minister for Lebanon was told he couldn't go to Lebanon uh, with his fellow parliamentarians. Well, we, of course, we rang the ambassador. As you know, things work in mysterious ways, and uh, within half an hour, my credentials were issued and my boarding pass was uh, given to me. Uh, but then when I arrived, I was given a red card and told, if you lose that red card, we won't let you out. So I thought, well, you didn't want me in in the first place. So. <laughs> um, but, but I think that, in a way, that's, that, kind of, that, that kind of sums up the issue uh, for many Lebanese. They're still at war. And I understand why. I understand the terrible, brutal conflict uh, that so very recently, only just 12 years ago, claimed so many Lebanese lives uh, with Israeli bombing. I spoke to a retired general who's now an advisor to Prime Minister Saad Hariri um, on uh, foreign relations, on military issues. Uh, and he was interesting, Maronite Christian, uh, but he told me that he had hope that thanks to the UN and thanks to outside uh, intervention, there could be ultimately a peace deal between Lebanon and Israel. I don't know, Simon, whether you picked that up at all, but I was very shocked and surprised given what everybody else had said to us. Let me move on briefly to Saudi Arabia. Now, you will know, everybody in this room, that my party has been very vocal, not just about the Khashoggi affair, um, but about, about the sale of arms to the Saudis and the way some of those armaments have been used um, against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Um, it's mainly been Emily Thornbury, our Shadow Foreign Secretary, who's made the running on this. Uh, but we have uh, bitterly criticised uh, the current government for their continuing support for these arms sales. A number of NGOs, as you know, including the campaign against uh, the arms trade, um, have uh, tried through the courts in this country to stop those arms sales by trying to show that there is good evidence that they've been used uh, in the bombing raids, in the attacks uh, on civilians. Uh, that case, unfortunately, wasn't proven, and therefore they lost. But there is, I understand, an appeal going ahead fairly soon. And there's quite a lot of confidence that appeal will be won. Uh, so that, you know, watch this space. I sat in this very room last December with Adel Al-Jubir, the Foreign Minister of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and he sat where you are, Lindsay, and opposite him, as if grilling him, and they did, was Andrew Mitchell, the former Conservative Secretary of State for International Development, and Keith Vaz, who himself was born in Yemen, as you probably know, the MP for Leicester East. And they gave uh, Al-Jubir a very, very rough time, uh, metaphorically, of course, they didn't beat him up or anything. But they did verbally. Uh, and I have to say, what surprised me most of all was his defence. Uh, it was <coughs> It was in very, very good, clear English. And it took a lot of the strands that are in this brilliant document that we're discussing this evening. Um, and his justification, you can see where he's coming from. Justifying his country's position. Justifying the brutality and the force that was being used against rebels, he said, who were far more brutal than the Saudis ever could be. No, no. I'll leave you to judge that. Um, and were utterly unreliable. So every time they tried to negotiate a ceasefire, every time they tried to actually meet face to face, the Houthis would say, yes, 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 we'll be there, and they never turned up. Uh, so how can you deal with people who are utterly unreliable and a non-state actor? And of course, we all know they're backed by the Iranians. What was the proof? Well, the missiles that were fired into Riyadh. Uh, and do you expect us not to defend ourselves against that? Um, I am not for one minute suggesting uh, that, that that justified their position. I don't think it did. But I do think that the West uh, could play a stronger role in trying to stop the terrible bloodshed that's going on and the humanitarian catastrophe 
that is following and that is unfolding as we speak this evening. Uh, we need to do far more as an international community to stop the continuing death and destruction. Let me just uh, finish by saying that um, you mentioned in the document, I think in your introduction, Simon, uh, that we um, will put aside the roles, uh, we must put aside the roles of Turkey, uh, Russia and other Western players and Western players. But I think that increasingly in this rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia that you so clearly and articulately put, uh, explained to us this evening, um, Russia and Turkey are much more important regional players than the United States, the European Union, or the United Kingdom or France. That once used to be the main regional players in the Middle East. They are no longer so important. And Turkey, for which I'm also a shadow minister, is carving out her own, by the way, as the chair of that all party group, uh, some, until I became a shadow minister. Turkey is carving out a role for itself under an increasingly authoritarian uh, leadership in that country. And that, in, in some ways, you can understand. But it would be tragic um, if Turkey became too embroiled, even though it regards itself uh, more and more as an Islamic, a leader in the Islamic world, even though it's not an Arab state. I'm going to stop my remarks there, but just by finish by saying thank you uh, for producing this document, because this will help to inform us all. And it will certainly, I'll take a copy for Emily Thornbridge to give her tomorrow morning, because I think that it is work like this that helps politicians like me, like Emily, like uh, Lindsay, like all of us, who are there to make policy, to criticise and hold our government to account, to help us do it a lot better. It is information and analysis that is so important. Uh, none of us can know every element of all the myriad of factors that goes into the current crisis, conflict and violence in the Middle East. And all of us want to see that ended and to see peace reign once more. And maybe, who knows, one day, a peace between Israel uh, and its neighbours. That would be good, wouldn't it? Um, but this helps us enormously, and the work of the Foreign Policy Centre and our wonderful uh, academics actually is, is essential to the work of politicians. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Fabian, um, for that overview um, and the depth that, that you, of your knowledge in this particular area. And uh, Fabian is absolutely right. It's, it's vital for us to have uh, these kind of analyses coming through. Um, you are in a very, very good position to be able to uh, study in depth um, the countries that we are some, sometimes often sort of jumping over, sliding over, uh, glossing over. And it's incredibly important to us um, to have this kind of um, analysis feeding into us. So, Many, many thanks for that. Um, can I uh, move on to our third speaker um, and uh, welcome those of you who've been drifting in. And my apologies for the length of time that you've been, that you spent in security before you got here. Um, I'm very sorry that um, things have been moving as slowly as they have. There are some seats over here if you want to come on in. <coughs> We started with a brave sort of half dozen <coughs> people, and now we have multiplied. And that's, you know, uh, so I'm very, very glad to see you all here. Um, can I turn to our third speaker? Dr. May Darwich is Assistant Professor in International Relations of the Middle East in the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. Um, she's got a PhD in Politics and International Relations from the University of Edinburgh. <coughs> And her current research project focus is on, military, on regional military interventions 
um, in the Middle East, of which there had been one or two, with a particular focus on the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen since 2015. Uh, she also focuses on the spread of sectarianism in the Middle East and the conce concept of shame in international relations. So I look forward may very much indeed to hearing what you have Thank to say. You. Thank you very much for the introduction and I would like to start as well by thanking Simon and my co-panelists. And I'm very delighted to be here today and what I'm going to try to do is basically talk a little bit about the Yemen war, the intervention, but also try to link it to more regional dynamics and especially the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. So as Simon mentioned, the Saudi-Iranian rivalry has kind of developed over time, kind of becoming very kind of strong during the 1980s, a little bit moderated during the, 19, the 90s, and then after 2003, we've been seeing rise in tensions, but especially after 2011, due to several factors at the regional level, but also at the international level, we've seen that the tension between these two regional powers have been increasing. One of the most important factors to this kind of tension is also related to disengagement of the US from the region, which somehow gave the regional actors some sense of feeling that they need to rely on, on themselves to kind of guarantee their own security. And from that perspective, the Saudis, but also other Gulf countries, especially the UAE, started to take some assertive decisions in the region, one of them related to the Yemen conflict. And Yemen is, seems to many like um, kind of like the public in the West, but also in the region, that it is a case of sectarianism. Somehow the population has a very large Shiite minority between 35 and 40 percent, but also some these kind of sectarian language has dominated the description and the analysis of the conflict. But looking more in details, we could see that somehow Yemen is some sort of a domestic struggle between different groups trying to achieve power. After 2011, the most marginalized groups uh, in Yemen realized that they, this is an opportunity. They could actually make demands. They could actually lead the country towards a democratic transition away from the authoritarian rule of Saleh. And somehow this kind of dynamic led to the national dialogue that Saudi Arabia was heavily involved. After realizing that this national dialogue did not really lead to any gains, but rather loss for these kind of groups, they took arms and somehow did this coup d'etat in 2014. The reaction of the Saudi and the UAE has been extremely aggressive, full intervention in the country, and again labeling this kind of conflict as a sectarian one that the Houthis are the clients of Iran in the region are somehow the proxies. Looking more closely to these kind of narratives, we can deconstruct that by saying Yemen has been supporting the Houthis. There have been very slight support <coughs> at the end of 2014. Nevertheless, this support has no significant um, effect on the balance of power in Yemen. And rather, Iran is actually not very interested to invest in Yemen. They're more interested to invest in Syria. They're more interested to invest in Lebanon. But Yemen is somehow not a really interesting case from the Iranian point of view. 
but rather the Saudis have framed that, legitimized their position as this is a way of actually kind of showing that the public, either inside Saudi Arabia or outside, that this is a legitimate war. It's on their borders. They need to protect somehow their borders from Iranian interference. Looking more at the details of the war, we will find that Iran is not as much as engaged, but rather the Houthis are also starting to adopt this kind of sectarian language in order to mobilize international support. The same thing for the Hadi government. They are also adopting sectarian government in order to with like kind of draw some support from the Sunni governments in the Gulf. So in that case, Yemen is a very particular case compared to other cases in the region where we have like sectarianism happening at the regional level and then impacting on domestic factors. In Yemen, it's actually moving towards sectarianization, but rather because all the actors involved have an interest in maintaining this kind of narrative. Of course, this narrative has very wide implications on the long term and very dangerous because deconstructing these narratives might take actually decades. So I'm a little bit more pessimistic than Simon in that regard. Uh, but also what is interesting and what the Yemen case shows is that where we are focusing on the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, the dynamics of the war shows also another rivalry that might be in sight in the future, which is between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. The UAE has emerged as a very powerful actor in Yemen, capable of actually maintaining a very independent strategies from Saudi Arabia. They have been much more successful in controlling some parts of the country compared to the Saudis. So most of people actually looking at the two interventions or the two style of interventions between the UAE and Saudi Arabia, definitely we expect some kind of rivalry between the two in the future. Now they are on the same side trying to face one enemy or one threat, but definitely over the long term, the UAE as well has a lot of ambitions, but also an agenda to become a leader in the region. So Yemen is not just this kind of sectarian rivalry, and it's not just a rivalry between Saudi and um, Iranian interests in the region, but it has more to do with the change in the regional dynamic, changing in the roles, the disengagement of the US from the region, but also the rise of small states like the UAE who are trying to play a bigger <coughs> role in the region. And I will stop you. Thank you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's another dimension. Um, I mean, the, you know, there, there's, there's been quite a lot of discussion, hasn't there, of UAE's, the UAE leadership's influence over the Saudi leadership. Um, I haven't ever heard anything, and maybe you have, um, said about um, the two of them being potential rivals and that then playing out. I can see why you are not as optimistic as, as Simon was. <laughs> okay, on that note, <laughs> um, can I move on to our fourth speaker? There's, there's a couple of chairs back here, by the way. Um, and Dr. S. Uh, Edward uh, Wasnich is lecturer in politics and international studies at the Open University, and he's also and he, where he's the director of the international studies program. <coughs> he's got a PhD in Middle Eastern studies from the University of Manchester, and his main research in interests focus on the politics and international relations of the Middle East, 
and Central Asia, with a particular focus on contemporary Iranian politics and foreign policy. Um, and um, there are a number of areas of his, uh, that his um, research explores, including the intersection of ideas and foreign policy, soft power, cultural and religious diplomacy, and the role of identity in international relations. And he's got a book published in 2016, um, Diplomacy and Reform in Iran. Um, yes. <laughs> so um, if I can ask you to uh, have our, uh, give, our, give us our concluding presentation. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, for coming, everyone. <laughs> it was you. <laughs> well, I wasn't a big one. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be talking about um, the uh, intersectional or the, the relationship between religion and geopolitics and Iranian foreign policy. Uh, and <laughs> what I'll talk about is some of the foundational ideas within Iranian contemporary Iranian foreign policy since the revolution and the notion of, of transnational networks that are important that Iran has cultivated and some of the kind of diplomatic initiatives that Iran has been undertaking as well which could potentially provide a basis for decentralization uh, in the future perhaps not um, so I mean I would agree with ethics been said in terms of characterizing the wider Saudi-Iran rivalry in terms of characterizing it in purely sectarian terms I would say it's, it's, it's simplistic and it doesn't really fully um, to the complex geopolitical dynamics that are at play. However, the Islamic Republic um, of Iran uses religious identity as, as a kind of means of influence and of cooptation amongst its coalitionists across the Shia world in the position of the preeminent Shia power. And a key element of building these kind of relationships is these transnational <coughs> networks, which form the basis of much of the cultural and diplomatic as well. Um, its commitment to the kind of core revolutionary themes of justice, resistance, uh, and also the cultivation of these kind of networks acts as actually a continual thread uh, in its foreign policy since the revolution. Often discussions of Iran's foreign policy will have a dichotomy of kind of revolutionary <coughs> versus pragmatism, but they're, they're not two separate things. They do actually feed into each other as well. Um, and a lot of the high-level diplomacy we see in relation to Iran is often cast in terms of its president or activity of its foreign ministers. We see with their uh, visibility around the nuclear program, for example. But when we look at its uh, religious networks and its cultural outreach work, um, a lot of that is done under the purview of the supreme leader, the ultimate authority in Iran. Um, and Iran's ability to make use of these kind of transnational linkages to, to the wider Shia communities have been aided by regional developments as well, uh, most notably the ouster of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, um, and the coming into power of friendly government there. So Iran's position as something of a, of a Shia metropole gives it the ability to make use of its transnational religious networks as and when they serve its national interests. And that's long been the case in the sponsorship of Hezbollah, as people well know, and also in the religious justification that's seen that it uses in taking the fight for Islamic State in, in Syria and Iraq. And, and Iran, the Iran government at least, in the discourse that it, it promotes, it, it sees itself and by extension also the Shia communities that it has ties with as a victim of sectarianism within the region. It's a victim of sectarianism uh, and seeks to counter actually this narrative. And it's tied its own fight against sectarianism um, to its long-standing resistance narrative, resistance against Israeli and US policies in the region, 
um, and the idea of it carrying out its own war on terror against these kind of Sunni extremist threats. And this kind of resistance narrative, which finds its articulation support for the Palestinian cause, for support Hezbollah, and any section also um, in Syria as well, um, draws on the kind of justice orientated worldview of the Supreme Leader. And that actually is something that forms part of Iran's constitutionally defined foreign policy objectives as well, which seeks to give support to the oppressed as well. Um, in terms of the religious networks, um, although Iran abandoned these kind of active, act, active exports of, of the Islamic Revolution in the 1980s, uh, it did go on to invest in building its diplomatic and religious infrastructure, expanding its religious outreach activities across the world, and drawing its position as a, as a kind of Shia power in, in a demonstration of growing soft power. Um, and that, in combination with the repression of the Iraqi Shia until the removal of Saddam, meant that Iranian centers of learning, religious learning, most notably Qom, uh, came to rival and, in some cases, overtake the traditional Shia centers of learning in, in Iraq and Najaf. Although that balance has been restored a bit in, in recent years. Um, and so these transnational linkages help provide legitimacies for Iran's action activities in the region, and we see this in its application of a kind of religious overlay that's used to justify its um, military engagement in Syria and Iraq, so it's channeling um, volunteer parties uh, to defend shrines there. And so it gives it a, a significant role in, in those communities that it can utilize to enhance its standing amongst co-religionists. And Iran has, uh, as many of you will know, has long-standing um, historical ties to Shia communities worldwide in Iraq, Lebanon, um, and, and, and you see this actually if you go to Iran, you go to Qom, for example, the, the seven nearest cities there, it's the centre of Iranian religious learning. And here you see students and clerics from all over the world in attendance at various seminaries there, and they obviously then go back to their own countries, having learned their religious education in Iran, further cementing these ties. And just finally, um, another aspect I wanted to just bring to your attention is, is Transnational networks aren't only kind of traditional religious activities affiliated to, to, to the health or to the Islamic um, education, but they also involve wider educational and diplomatic missions undertaken by the Iranian government. So um, these are used as a kind of vector to enhance its diplomatic relations and deepen ties with communities across the world, um, trying to you know, effectively enhance its soft power. And, and just some examples of, of these kind of diplomatic tools, they're, they're kind of parastatal organizations, sometimes linked to uh, foundations in Iran. Um, some examples are in the Ahri Beit World Assembly, uh, which is a group that brings Shia scholars and religious leaders from around the world um, together every four years for a conference in Tehran, so a kind of place of intra-religious um, dialogue. We also have the Islamic Cultural Relations Organization, now this is perhaps a, a kind of equivalent to the British Council or Confucius Institute in China, which is Iran's cultural diplomacy arm. Employs Iran's cultural fashions around the world and um, really under, employed directly by the Supreme Leader rather than the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as well, so um, an important source of power there. Uh, and they have a very flexible remit in terms of the cultural outreach that they uh, practice, and so much of that is done in the religious sphere. And then you have other foundations like the Clemente Relief Foundation, for example, which is one of Iran's largest charitable foundations, and that carries out development work primarily in Iran but also has an active international. Uh, operation as well, providing development assistance to Muslim communities worldwide, and not just along sectarian lines either. Um, and, and you know, arguably, we, we may talk about this afterwards, but these kind of groupings are, are 
often pitch some of the message in terms of you know combating sectarian discourses um, in the region as well, and a possible avenue for further kind of uh, desectarianisation. Um, so, run just, just to wrap this up has a multiplicity of networks which draw on its position at the centre of Shia learning and influence, and allow it to harness the kind of identity-based narrative that finds a practical utility soft and hard engagements. And its position gives it a, a means of influence, influence amongst the Shia communities worldwide, and its cultural and religious outreach work further reinforces the size of this community. Well, thank you very much indeed. Another Um, we've got about half an hour um, for questions. Um, can I also say that if you're tweeting, it's um, hashtag SEPAD, S-E-P-A-D, that you might want to include in. And I'm going to take um, questions in groups of three so that we can get through as many as we can. And can you please identify yourselves and can you please be uh, brief in your questions? The gentleman here. Thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. Keith Best, former member of Parliament, presently chair of the Women's Place Charlotte Trust. This is not an area of my expertise, which my naivety is my question without to demonstrate. But it, it seems to me, and every speaker has emphasized the volatility of this region, it seems to me historically, both before the First World War and substantially afterwards as well, the natural uh, nexus in the area for the West has been Iran rather than Saudi Arabia, demonstrated by those parameters that I mentioned. Now, of course, it, it seems impossible that that could ever be regenerated in the current circumstances. But I'd be interested in the panel um, speculating as to what characteristics might be necessary for that to become again a reality where actually the West and Iran is working more closely together in that region rather than necessarily if the antipathy means it would, it would have to exclude Saudi Arabia, uh, and how the panel see that might develop, I and mean, what, what are the salient points that are necessary for that transformation to take place? Thank you. Um, there's a gentleman over there. Mm -hmm. caught my eye. Your name? Yusuf Al-Khoi. It seems to me that there are structural problems which we are not really willing to discuss. And of course, Iran and Saudi Arabia both seek to use religion for their soft power. But if you look at the nature of the Saudi way they do it, they are structurally conflictual. But in Yemen, the Yazid babies are not even like Shias, like in Iran. They're closer to Sunnis than they are closer to Shias. And it is the many years of thousands of madrasas and the Wahhabi teachings in both Pakistan and Yemen and other places which has created fear amongst the minorities, including the Shia, who have no rights in most of the Gulf states, no rights in education, no rights, proper rights in citizenship. And then the governments can suppress the minorities under the pretext of Iran, as one of the professors mentioned. 
I do not know. Can somebody explain to me why for so long can Saudi Arabia get away with so much murder and, and promoting extremism? Yes. Um, Thank you. Um, I'm going to take Edward first and come up, go along, and then <coughs> next time I'll do it in the other direction. Um, yes, yes, assuming that you want. Okay. Uh, uh, select, um, if, if there are ones that you particularly want to sure. address, do that, but uh, I'll ask all of you to comment. Great questions. Uh, thank you. Um, it's a very interesting question I've asked there. Um, what's necessary for it to be a reality that, that Iran becomes the natural ally of West again in the region. I mean, <laughs> beyond the change of government, I'm not sure it's, it's difficult, and that's not something I would ever promote either. Um, Iran wants to be treated as an equal, uh, it wants its um, interests to be understood better. Um, so, integration of Iran into kind of international organizations, which, which Iran has been doing actively since the early 90s, anyway. Especially if, if you look at Iran's foreign policy towards Central Asia, for example, oh, yeah. the space has been very, very pragmatic in that regard. So, um, if perhaps there could be more appreciation of that by, by the West, then, then you know, they may see that Iran is not necessarily the revision factor that it often paints it out to be. Um, other things that might make it a reality um, would be Saudi overreach, perhaps, but whether that's Likely to happen. We, we saw South Overreach already, and, 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 and what's the you know, um, outcome of that? Very little, it seems. Perhaps a slap on the wrist or something. Um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's a great question, but I, I think you know, Iran also would not necessarily want to be you know, the, the natural ally of the West either. It wants to be understood and wants its independence and its views to be taken into account, but it doesn't necessarily want to be anyone's kind of um, pet either. Rallying against that um, and seeking independence, and actually, you know, informs a lot of its approach to regional issues. And, and if you look at kind of Iran's proposals on regional security, um, it's all about you know inclusive within the region and the exclusion of external powers. So it really wants to you know have, have regional solutions um, to, to the issues there, rather than being imposed from outside. Um, I mean, I. I fully agree um, with yourself on, on, on the issue of um, Saudi religious outreach in terms of the, the pernicious effects. Um, and I think there needs to be a calibration in the West um, to, to counter some of those dangerous things. I don't know whether it's likely, unfortunately, because of the <coughs> invested interest. You know, I don't want to start banging on like a, a kind of theorist against this, but it, you know, it really is um, you know, clear that <laughs> the, the, final, the, the final question I, I 
I didn't catch it because I was busy writing my answers down to the other one. So about comparing the current internal stability of each of them. Hey, I mean, I'll just speak on the one case because I think other people have more and, and better important things to say on the others as well. But I, I suppose to a certain extent, yes. I mean, sometimes it, it's a case of appealing to a domestic constituency, you know, because you know, there are people in Iran who do support the government, you know, everyone's here, but there is a current a strong section of society that supports the, the regime there. So, um, so that's why applying while I was talking about this kind of application of like a, say, a religious overlay onto its involvement in conflicts which are really geopolitical in nature rather than religiously ordained, you know, perhaps helps sell it in some ways. Um, and, you know, you could see it, you know, as a response to um, internal instability in terms of competing ethnic groups, for example, but um, it's something I'd have to ruminate a bit more on. Perhaps you can take over Thank you. <laughs> Simon. Thank you, Eddie, I, um, and thank you for your thought-provoking questions. Uh, I, I'm inclined to agree with a lot of what you've said, Eddie. I, the one thing I would add to the, the first question about what characteristics are necessary, I would say trust. I would suggest that if, uh, if there is to be some kind of reorganization of, of regional politics, and I would certainly echo a great deal of what you've said, Eddie, I would also say that if you look at the UK in particular, its relationship with Iran across the 20th century, it's littered with issues and performances and actions that have, have created a climate of distrust. And you talk to Iranians and they will echo that distrust of, of the UK with good reason. Not just the, uh, the coup d'etat that toppled the first democratically elected prime minister, but going further back to the Anglo-Iranian oil company, where more money was coming here than was going to the coffers in Tehran. So I would say building trust. And that's one of the things that I would like to, to strongly echo. It's, it's something that I think is a key component part of the project, of the report that's in front of you. Trust building is essential. I may be saying this with a hat on as a director of a peace studies institute, mm -hmm. but trust building is absolutely key. And I would argue that you can't have this recalibration without trust. Yusuf, I certainly uh, agree with a lot of your sentiments. I would perhaps argue that um, there's a, a realist viewpoint. The House of Lords committee that I sat on, the report produced was, um, was entitled Time for a New Realism. And I think that it not really had that time for a new one. It's still the old one. And that old one is governed by self-interest. It's governed by rail politique. It's governed by we support our allies. And we also sell them weapons because it's in our interests economically, but it's in our interests politically. I'm currently based in the northwest of England, and a great many jobs in the northwest are, um, are made through arms sales, through arms developments. And I think it would be incredibly difficult politically for politicians to say we will cut back on arms sales because we will lose a great deal of money, but we'll also have to sacrifice thousands of jobs. So there's a, a sort of self-sacrifice there. So it's not really time for a new realism. It's time for a completely different way of thinking about foreign policy. 
because that realism is just going back to the same old, same old of economics, self-interest and power. If you want to have a new way of doing politics, and I, I liked what Fabian said about politics is hope. I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. We have to have something completely different, particularly when dealing with states who are ostensibly our allies, but doing so much uh, pernicious, nefarious activity. Um, very briefly on the third question, my first book was on Saudi-Iranian relations. And it was written as my PhD beginning in 2008, and it spends a lot of time talking about the importance of domestic factors. And the, the main thesis of that book is that to understand the rivalry between the two states, we need to look at the domestic. We need to look at the domestic arena and the uncertainty, the instability, the fears of the various identity groups, be they religious, sectarian, ethnic, political. And the, the argument runs something along the lines of there is this fear, there is this uncertainty and instability among, amongst the regimes in Tehran and Riyadh. And that provoked them as a consequence of a sort of a very basic security dilemma, if you will, to behave in a certain way that escalated the rivalry, that created fear in the other. And that, that sort of ratcheted up tensions, and you see the, the stronger, the, the, the more prominent the domestic, the more prominent the international. And I fear that the more instability you get in one, the, the, the greater the instability you'll get regionally. May. Well, thank you. I think I will, the first question has been fully addressed. The second question, um, I would add to what Simon said, is that your point on the minorities and how the Saudis have been leading somehow some sort of Wahhabi teaching in Yemen has had a very large impact on how the Houthis are somehow distrustful of the Saudi behavior in Yemen in general. And I think Fabian was mentioning as well that in a way that the Saudis are always saying, well, the Houthis are not reliable, they never show up to the talks. But the other side as well as saying, well, the only talks that they have attended last year, their representative have been stranded for months. So one of the demands of actually starting any talks that they are looking for a secure path to return after the talks. So there is a mistrust between both actors. And definitely, I mean, why Saudis not being penalized? I think Simon answered it very nicely, but I would say they're not the only one doing things and not getting penalized for it in international politics. And that is somehow the reality of international relations. And unfortunately, the Yemen war is going to backfire on the Saudis. I mean, sooner or later, they are just on their borders and somehow all the atrocities, it's gonna create a whole generation of terrorists, basically. What they consider as a nightmare, they are actually doing it themselves. And Nicole's question, um, I do agree with what my co-panelists said. The only thing I would add in relation to the Yemen war, um, framing the Yemen war as an Iranian-Saudi rivalry has a lot of importance at the Saudi domestic level because there's a lot of cost that's being invested at the domestic level, especially that the Saudis are looking to somehow create more economic dynamics and momentum through the 
somehow diversifying their resources, but at the same time, the Yemen war is putting a lot of pressure on their economy. And somehow they need a very powerful narrative to justify that to their population. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Lady here. Can you identify oh, yourself? Sorry, I'm Audrey Wells, London University. What countries other than Saudi Arabia and Iran would have leverage in the situation in Yemen that could help bring about peace? And could the UN be brought into it? I think I'm going to take six. I've got so many here. Um, gentleman right there. Sorry, what's your name? <laughs> As you know, in Middle East, you are highly incentivized, and the politics is a full of uh, manipulation. So, additionally, when your uh, opponent can just be invited to the background, they give a very good ceremony, at the end, they serve a nice dessert with a poison at the end. Gentleman behind you. I'm going to take one, two, three, like that. <laughs> uh, so this lady here, then, yep. Gentleman behind. Um, I, uh, Dr. Richard has been working from the US Data Set. Anne Lewis was from SDI this week. Mm -hmm. um, uh, moving to within a, a regional perspective, um, obviously, Islamic State has been a big issue um, for policymakers in, in the region and in the West. Um, what role, if any, do you see Saudi Arabia and Iran playing in sort of preventing a uh, future incident like this happening? And the gentleman behind. Uh, 
Okay, um, I'm going to take, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll take another six in a minute um, if we've got time. Which, um, so if, we, if you scoop up what questions you wish to answer, yeah, um, may I start with you? Right, so I'll start with the first question. What other countries in Yemen that have a stake and who might be influential and the role of the UN? Actually, the, the UN is actually struggling and they're kind of shouting for help for the international community because they kind of consider Yemen to be on the brink of a famine. And the humanitarian crisis is really getting out of hand. And if you follow the news the last few days, the port of Hodeida has been a huge battle. And it is likely to determine the, the fate of the people, actually, who are getting all the aid and the food through that port. So um, the countries who have a stake or have an influential role to control what's happening in Yemen are those who actually provide the arms to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, full stop. <laughs> to be very brief. Um, I will jump to the second question and I'll take the third question on the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So um, the UAE is still like the role is in progress. So we see some signs that the UAE has been, as you say, trying to provide or adopting some policy that's more or less independent of Saudi Arabia in Yemen, but not just in Yemen, in Oman as well. And somehow this is also not just the goals of what they want to achieve. They want to achieve some certain influence in certain parts of Yemen, but also the way they achieve it is very different. So whereas the Saudis have been focusing on air strikes, the UAE has a lot of troops on the ground, and they have been actually doing it quite properly and quite impressively. So that is telling a lot about what the UAE wants to do over the long term. They have established very strong relations with several tribes in several areas in, uh, in Yemen, which the Saudis have been unable to do, uh, but also the economic relations that they want to establish in the future with these parts. So these are all signs to show that the UAE has a different plan, a different strategy, and that is likely to clash with the Saudi strategy in the future. Um, on the concept of shame, so, <laughs> So it, it is kind of, it's, it's somehow, it's not, I'm not really looking at it from the individual level, but many of the things, many of the emotions, many of the instances that we feel at the individual level actually work as well at the international level. So emotions like shame, emotions like fear, like <coughs> vulnerability, all of these that we feel at the individual level in our social interactions, many international relations scholars, they say, well, the community of state at the international level, through the leaders, they actually have the same feeling. And the concept of shame is one of the cases where leaders, in a way, are acting against what their identity dictates or their beliefs are dictating. So over the long time, they feel the shame. So to give you a very uh, concrete example, the Saudis, one of the risks of the Saudi intervention in Yemen is a feeling of shame. The Saudis have been trying to establish their, let's say, their image as the leader of Sunni Islam, the protector of Islam in the region. And at the same time, they are causing a whole Muslim population to starve. So here there is a very stark contradiction. 
in what they are saying, what they believe in, and what they are doing. So over the long term, or the short term, there might be a feeling of shame that develops. So it's just an example. <coughs> I think I'll leave the rest of the questions. Thank you very much. Fun. Thank you. Simon. Thank you again. Uh, I'm going to select questions two, three, five, and six. <laughs> Question two. Um, how do you separate manipulation from politics? If I understood the question correctly, I think I'm going to um, echo question one from the last round, which is trust. Build trust. I think without trust, you can't really have that level of, of political interactions that is free from manipulation. Well, of course, it's not, a, it's not necessarily true that you can't manipulate someone whose trust you have. But I think if you want to try and move beyond it, you need to cultivate trust and honesty and openness and transparency. Maybe that's my idealism coming through, but um, we've heard a lot of pessimism right now. So a, a little, little dose of idealism might be healthy for us all. Uh, question three um, from the Lancaster alumnus. Excellent. Uh, I will report back. <laughs> well trained. Huh? Yes. Um, I, I think it's, it's a really good question. Um, pretty much overlooked, other than from May, but largely missed in the, in the media. My thought would be that we have to do both. We have to look at it within the context of a broader regional struggle. We have to look at it within the context of Emirati goals, aspirations. But we've also got to say, look, we need to understand what actually is happening on the ground. Who is it that's pushing the secessionist mo movement? What is it that they want? How likely is it that they will succeed? I would say relatively likely from the Yemenis that I've spoken to. There will be a separation of, of the state, I fear. Um, but I think that we have to understand it within the context of what's happening right there on the ground in a secessionist movement and the regional forces that create the climate in which a secessionist movement can take place. If that makes sense. Um, Daesh. I would say that there was an opportunity for the Saudis and the Iranians to start to work together uh, to tackle a, a shared threat. Daesh posed a very serious threat to both Riyadh and Tehran. And whilst it looked like there was scope and possibility, Riyadh established an anti-terror coalition comprised entirely of Sunni states. So it was set up as an Islamic anti-terror coalition, but it was comprised purely of, of Sunni states, populated predominantly by Pakistani soldiers. And um, that was designed to tackle Daesh and extremism. And the way that was framed is Daesh plus Shia militias who were actually far worse than Daesh. So it was, it was an opportunity missed, I think. And the last question, the red lines, I think Eddie's probably far better place to speak about the Iranian red lines. I hope that's what you were jotting down. Um, <laughs> but I think for, for Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and Yemen are its two main red lines. Bahrain we saw in early 2011 when it looked like the Al Khalifa regime may fall. They sent in, under the guise of the GCC Peninsula Shield Force, they sent in troops and depending who you talk to, you get different stories, but that essentially propped up the regime. And the, the concern was that either the Al Khalifa was gonna fall or there would be the election of a, of a Shia parliament, a, a Shia second chamber, 
And that very proposal saw the Crown Prince of Bahrain have his wings clipped. He was pulled back from the public eye for, for a couple of years. And essentially, the stability of the Al Khalifa and maintaining the status quo is a red line for, for Saudi Arabia. Thanks, great questions. I'll, I think I'll skip the first four in the end of my time. Um, and just, just the last couple, in terms of Daesh's, well, the preventing um, something like that happening again. As I mentioned, Iran sees itself as a, as a victim uh, of sectarianism and as, you know, on, on the front line in the war against them. Um, and so has been quite keen to promote um, initiatives, ideas. Uh, Rouhani talked about the world against violence and extremism in, in his um, first General Assembly talk when he became president. Um, they propose regional security dialogues, as I mentioned in response to the first question, that are all based around keeping external powers out. So they see the solution uh, as, as a regional one and actually as, as a means of, of promoting dialogue between themselves and Saudi Arabia. Um, that said, you know, the blame is often laid squarely at Saudi Arabia's door for Daesh's existence. Um, uh, and indeed, I mean, I was just, uh, as an example, I was in Lebanon um, last year and uh, an art exhibition um, that was run by the Iranian Cultural Attaché's office there, a lot of the art was by Iranian um, political art, you know, uh, artists, and, and this kind of idea of the US-Israeli Saudi conspiracy um, as propping up Daesh was, was very prominent in a lot of that artwork. Expressions. Um, the, the, the other thing would be for Iran would be working with their own allies, so um, making use of the networks that I talked about to to, um, to, to prevent this kind of thing happening. Um, and, and really linking this to the, to the final question on, on the red lines, um, you know, Iran views a lot of these issues in very defensive terms. You know, it's not an offensive power in the region as such. You know, even its involvement in, in Syria and Iraq is viewed as a defensive thing to, to keep. Daesh and, and keep Sunni extremism from its borders. It, it, you know, it ties its involvement in these conflicts to its own national security. So the things that would push the region, you know, push, for example, these two into conflict would be, you know, a territorial breach by by a hostile government or an allied government allied to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, in Iran, there's this narrative of, of them not invading any country. You know, and they're in Syria as a guest of, of the Syrian government. So it would be a, a hostile act. Uh, Territorial breach, the US Israeli strike. Um, Iran's had a lot of kind of lower level hits against it. Um, you know, we see that in, in, in the, the attacks in Tehran last year and also in Khuzestan um, earlier this year. Um, uh, but it's not gone on the offensive as, as such, so I think you know, it would have to be a pretty big hostile strike, territorial breach that, that would make it um, a hot conflict. That great thinker, President Trump, wouldn't agree with you. <laughs> um, I'm going to try and scoop up another half dozen questions um, very rapidly. And uh, let me see, I have. Yes, gentlemen here. Yeah, but I was late because of few was very, very long. Yep. And I was reading an op ed today in Washington Post. Um, quickly to the question, because we've got about three minutes Sorry, before yeah, we're supposed yeah. to get out of here. I just read uh, Jeremy Hunt's statement today in that, which says, with millions of displaced, famine and de disease rise, and years of bloodshed, the only solution is now a political decision to set aside arms and pursue peace. Now, my question is, if 
pursue as the objective of Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the West will achieve? A. B. Another question. Uh, no, sorry. Another one, no, sorry. I don't, I don't think. The the once peace comes eventually. Okay. You just squeeze that in. Um, <laughs> gentlemen in the structure. gentleman I was looking at before. Yes, very quickly, please. I mean, that's not a form of hanging me in the past. Um, I'm living here on the side. Um, my question to Victor is um, about the conflict between uh, Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia, which is historically uh, is there. Uh, Saudi has maintained the, the most powerful, uh, I would say, economy in the region, and they are controlling the by economy. And they always, Bahrain always using Iran as a Saudi trying to explain historically as that one prime minister we have maintained since 1971 is always bringing this subject to the Saudis like we have one enemy which is the, uh, Iran, causing uh, a bridge between Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. Um, if there is any um, settlement between Iran and Saudi, we believe it would reflect directly on Bahrain. If there is not, what do you think? What, what, what do you suggest as a solution to between? the opposition or admission Shia opposition and the government. And there was a lady at the back who seemed to be indicating. Gentlemen, to your. Uh, yes, um, it was kind of mentioned earlier that the role of Iran and Yemen would be saturated, but I, I just want to know why Iran has invested in Yemen compared to Syria, for example. Is it a case of someone having to do so, or is it a risk of escalation? Okay, and this gentleman here for the um, last but, question. Um, yeah, my name's Hugo. So when you take the West out of the Middle East and you remove the uh, West Bank and South, you look at it, you, you know, uh, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Iran is quite structurally entrenched there. And you look at uh, Yemen, and it's brought Saudis, it's very long, very expensive war, very little. Um, it seems that Iran is actually having a lot 
success, so to what extent can you say that the shape of Millie today is the most in a way? Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and um, I'll go this way again. And um, if there's anything else that um, you feel, you know, it's absolutely essential to say that you haven't managed to get in, please take this opportunity. But you've got these six questions to hang anything on. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, less than. Okay. Uh, so I'll just take the, the second question in terms of the domestic uh, considerations in Iran, with the example that you gave. I think these are issues that have become securitized by the Iranian government, um, and therefore any ethnic insurrection is seen, uh, you know, they're seen as stooges of, of foreign uh, hostile powers. Uh, that, that's how the narrative um, that the government rightly or wrongly um, uses, which means that it's very difficult to, to get a voice in it. Why activists have to um, have an important role to play in that regard, and that is linking that to, to, to the fourth question about civil society. I think if, if civil society space is greater in, in a country like Iran, and we've seen occasional glimpses of that under more reformist-minded politicians, then then certainly I think they can contribute. And we saw efforts of that under the Fatimid administration, um, which fed into a kind of wider interregional, intra-religious dialogue as well. Um, so it's possible. Um, the final question, just um, I won't comment on Yemen, but the final question is: Is the Middle East a, a success for Iran? But well, I think Iran has made the best of its, its resources, given its you know kind of minority position. But I don't think the region is, is necessarily fully shaped by Iran. I think it's still prone to a lot of Western intervention and, and support of um, powers such as Saudi Arabia. Thank you so much, and speed with which you did that, Simon. <laughs> I will try and match the speed, Eddie. <laughs> have the aims been met? No, I don't think anyone's aims have been met in the Middle East in terms of the, the, the rivalry between these two states and the, the various proxy, non-proxy conflicts that they're engaged in, because if they were, then they would have ended. So I think they're still trying to achieve their, their aims and their objectives in, in whatever form that may be. Um, in terms of, of Iran, I think there is a growing body of work that looks at the domestic turmoil, the treatment of, of various groups, various ethnic groups, political groups. And one of the recommendations on page 27 of the report is to encourage adherence to the rule of law and recognition of individual rather than community rights. And um, it's optimistic, but I would argue that that applies across civil society groups across the region. That will certainly help if done correctly to circumvent and hopefully reduce some sectarian divisions. Um, so an optimistic point from me. In terms of Bahrain, uh, I, I'm, I've been working on Bahrain for, for a long time. It's a place that fascinates me. I've been lucky enough to visit and people have been wonderful. I've work, I'm working with some of your colleagues, Mr. Jawad Fairuz, and he's been incredibly kind. Um, I. I'm incredibly saddened by the plight facing yourself and a number of, of your colleagues. I think it's abhorrent and I think more should be done to raise, that, uh, raise awareness of those situations. I think you have been the victims of this Saudi-Iranian rivalry in an attempt by um, a number of the members of the regime to frame pol legitimate political opposition as a threat, as a nefarious threat, as a consequence of uh, malicious Iranian activity, and I think that is wrong. I think that if the, the, the resolution, a resolution between Saudi and Iran happened, 
it would make things easier, but I fear that there would be another way of framing legitimate political opposition that would be found in an attempt to prevent that type of political space in civil society and legitimate political movement from, from thriving. May. So um, Iran's investment in, uh, in Yemen, it is definitely a very small investment, but it has like major returns for Iran as well. The, the main important thing is that the Houthi and Iran has not, it's not a relationship of proxy. Many kind of compare the Houthis to Hezbollah. It's a very different relationship. It's more of the Houthis being inspired by somehow Iranian um, efforts in the region and they want more Iranian involvement to support them. But Iran as well does not really see the benefit because it might lead to a very direct confrontation with Saudi Arabia. And despite all we've been talking about this rivalry taking place in several um, issues in the region and in several conflicts, both Saudi Arabia and Iran have been very, very careful not to fall into any kind of direct confrontation. So I think this is very important about Iran's being more successful. I would say the other actors have been a failure uh, rather than a success, really. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm, I mean, it's been incredibly wide-ranging and uh, very enlightening, especially um, to those of us who are here in this particular place. Um, I mean, it's in many ways a warning. You know, politicians stay away from this region. <laughs> um, but it's incredibly important that we are as well informed as we possibly can be. And I'm very, very grateful to um, all of you. I'm very grateful to the Foreign Policy Center for setting this up and the Richardson Institute. But in particular, um, my thanks to our three speakers uh, this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.